0: My name is Jackie and you are listening to Seeking Refuge. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to announce that we are now an independent organization. We thank you all for your continued support and shout out to the advising staff and students at Max International House for helping us grow into the organization we are today. We remain committed to sharing the human stories of refugees and we are excited to continue hosting a safe space for all individuals to share their stories. But now to the important information. In today's episode, I had the privilege of speaking with Angelina Sim, who works for the U.S. Department of State as a Regional Refugee Coordinator in the Bureau of Population, Refugees, and Migration, otherwise known as PRM. In our conversation, we discuss PRM's role globally, as well as revisit Venezuela and the worsening crisis there. Hello, everyone. I'm here with Angelina Sen, who is a regional refugee coordinator for the U.S. Department of State. And if you just want to introduce yourselves, tell our listeners a little bit about you and your job, just a brief overview.
1: Hi, good afternoon. So I work for the U.S. Department of State. And specifically, I work for the Bureau of Populations, Refugees, and Migration, which is known commonly by its acronym PRM. Um, And what PRM does, we are actually the humanitarian arm of the State Department. Uh, And we're one of the largest humanitarian donors in the world. And I think a a lot of people use the word donor pretty broadly, but just to be very specific, our mandate as PRM is that of saving lives and providing uh, humanitarian assistance and protection worldwide. We work together with other U.S. agencies who have similar mandates operating inside of the humanitarian space, but really where PRM leads um, and where our role is very unique is on the role that we play with humanitarian diplomacy. Um, so we are out there in the field as refugee coordinators, there's 30 plus of us around the world, and we're working on the ground with host country governments, mostly, um, on the day-to-day management of humanitarian crises. Um, and we're present in every major humanitarian crisis in the world. So I think that, um, our work is very unique in that we're, we're playing two roles. We're, we're able to actually provide the assistance and the financial support to our partners, which are primarily multilateral organizations like UNHCR, IOM, UNICEF, and, and obviously uh, International Civil Society and Local so, Civil Society. But we also are involved bilaterally in, in actually uh, executing humanitarian diplomacy on the ground. And then there's a third access to that, and that's actually the resettlement program, the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program, um, which under uh, the Biden administration is really starting to gear up now.
0: I know you are located in Bogota, Colombia. So what is PRM doing in Colombia? And what what specifically is your role in that?
1: So, we actually have been in Colombia for a very long time. Um, You know, we were the primary humanitarian donor uh, working in internal conflict here in Colombia. And we've actually been playing that role since around the year 2000. So, we've been here for a very, very long time. That said, around, you know, 2016, 2017, when the Venezuela humanitarian crisis really started um, to get much worse. We, together with USAID's Bureau of Humanitarian Assistance, have ended up playing, uh, I think, a pretty fundamental role from the donor perspective in terms of organizing U.S. government assistance to address uh, life-saving needs of Venezuelans. Now, what started off as a relatively small response has now, I mean, I'm sure you've seen the statistics, but this is the largest exodus of forced displacement in the Americas in all of history. You know, we're looking at 5.5 million people who've been displaced throughout the region. And then here in Colombia, we have the largest number, about 1.7 million that that Colombian migration is tracking. But, you know, our humanitarian partners really put those estimates closer to or over 2 million. Um, I also cover inside Venezuela for PRM, which is a significantly smaller uh, portfolio, given that, you know, PRM is primarily looking at refugees and migrants. So the lead U.S. agency response for inside Venezuela would be with um, with the Bureau of Humanitarian Assistance over at USAID. But we're kind of lashed up as a, a really tight-knit group here. Um, and so, so we kind of organize ourselves as, as a one U.S. government presence. In our last season, we
0: covered a little bit about the crisis in Venezuela and what's going on. Have there been any recent developments? Has it just continued to get worse or is there any switch in trajectory? And especially how does the new Biden administration, is there a difference in how this crisis will be handled or maybe the um, opportunities that these refugees will have going forward?
1: Well, I mean, I think the first and foremost thing that you have to talk about is something that the whole world is going through and that's the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, the, the amount of economic hardship that this entire region has been suffering as a result of, you know, extended quarantines and lockdowns has really, um, I mean, overall, on, on the best day, Venezuelan populations are extremely vulnerable. Because of the conditions that they're, they're living in um, inside Venezuela, you know, you've just seen this catastrophic decline in infrastructure, services, availability of basic goods, health care. You know, um, when we're talking about sexual and reproductive health care, I mean, these things have just been wiped off the map by the poor actions of the illegitimate Maduro regime. So taking all of that into account, now you bring in a global pandemic and all of the hardship that that's brought. So I think, you know, what we've seen overall is that this kind of slide and decline in conditions inside Venezuela, which is really the driving force of why people are getting up and making these really heartbreaking decisions to to leave their homes and their families and everything they know. We've seen that that's accelerated. And, and I think the thing that's really important to realize is that, you know, with the pandemic going on, there's been a lot of land borders around South America that have been closed and that still remain closed while they're looking to try to control the spread of the virus. So now, in, in addition to already being extremely vulnerable and leaving terrible conditions in a state uh, that's already very, very, um, very much less than it was even a year ago, now people are coming in completely illegally. So their chances to, to actually be able to, to become visible, to integrate, um, are much lower. And what they're coming to is you know, economies that are really in crisis, um, dealing with it with that, you know, the impact of, of what's happened over the last year.
0: Do you have an estimate of maybe how many refugees, especially with the new ceiling, from Venezuela – will be resettled in the United States in the next year?
1: So right now we're still waiting on some of the new executive orders and the new presidential determination. So I I'd, I'd defer that question. Um, we're still waiting. You know, it's early days in the new administration and there's been a ton of movement in terms of executive orders, um, a restoration of U.S. membership in the World Health Organization, um, we're also looking at reinitiating our relationships with other UN agencies like UNFPA. But in terms of um, specific numbers, we are still waiting to see where those land.
0: I want to move a little bit more specifically to you. I was wondering what your current day to day work is like um, and then how your career trajectory, how you've gotten to this position.
1: So I am a, I guess you would call me a rank and file diplomat. Uh, I joined the, the foreign service in April of 2007 and actually started my career in China. Um, I had been living in China previously, so I spoke some Chinese and, and that got me my first tour as a consular officer straight back to China. Um, and then I somehow happened upon for my second tour, the deputy refugee coordinator in the regional office in Bangkok. Um, and I have to admit, I mean, I previous to joining the Foreign Service, I had worked up at the UN on the NGO side a little bit. So I kind of heard of PRM, but um, but I didn't know as much about the job as 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 you would think. <laughs> and uh ended up in the the position in Bangkok, which I, I think for me was kind of one of those things where I met my, my vocation <laughs> and, uh, and unlike a lot of, I think foreign service officers, you know, we're supposed to be generalists by, by our very nature. You know, you move from place to place, you're going from region to region, from specialties to specialty. And so, you know, people are, are constantly kind of, all right, every two to three years, you're changing everything. Well, I fell in love with this work. I fell in love with uh, what we're able to do, the real tangible nature of of how, you know, good policy and good donorship can really turn into making a, a positive change in individual people's lives. I mean, for me, that, that really motivates me. Um, and so I kind of have taken the path less traveled. And I have ended up serving as a refugee coordinator in pretty much, I, I would say, a pretty big number of emergencies, L3 emergencies across the globe now. So I started off in East Asia. I worked on the Rohingya, the Burmese, uh, Lao Mung. Then, um, I moved over to Iraq at the end of the war. Um, and I was in Baghdad for about a year, went back to the U S. And, and then when, um, Mosul fell, I actually, uh, ended up back in Northern Iraq to help set up our operation to deal with that giant flow of internal displacement. It was about a million people moving over that border in around 72 hours. So they were looking for folks who who already knew the ropes inside of Iraq. So I ended up back there, then moved over to Beirut to to help set up our office there. It's actually PRM's largest single country program from the Syria crisis. And then following that, uh, I ended up in Ankara, Turkey, working on the Syria Transition Assistance Response Team for a few years. So um, managing all of PRM's work for Turkey and for Northern Syria. And then here I am over in the Venezuela crisis since uh, since late 2019. So I, I've, I've made a career of it.
0: <laughs> You've definitely seen a lot. Um, I'm personally a geography major. And so I love looking at differences um, geographically speaking. And I was wondering... Have you noticed any big differences in the refugee experience or in PRM's approach from place to place in all these different areas that you have been working in?
1: I mean, it couldn't be more different, honestly. I mean, and I think that 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 has been one of the things that I've really loved about having this long career with PRM is that we don't take a one-size-fits-all approach to to how we do our work. And our work is really uh, very focused on the individual context of that situation. And I don't see how how we could actually be effective otherwise. You know, you look at kind of what would the, the baseline of a response look like. And when you're looking at something in, say, you know, the Chittagong Hill tracks in Bangladesh for the Rohingya, and you're comparing it to downtown Bogota, Maybe you could say the gross numbers are more or less the same. There's you know, <laughs> but that's that's where the comparisons end. Um, you know, you're looking at um, some places where you have uh, fully functioning markets, you have um, a fully urban based response where you know, people are engaged in informal labor markets versus, you know, where you're going someplace where it's completely rural or where it's a camp based situation where people are struggling because they've been warehoused for 27 years. So incredibly different from place to place. Um, and, and I would say that even inside of some contexts where you're looking at what the life is like for a Syrian refugee who's living, you know, in the countryside in Lebanon versus a Syrian refugee who's working in Istanbul, I mean, those people may be from the same hometown, but their experience as a refugee is dramatically different. And their vulnerabilities and their needs are also going to be dramatically different. So I think, you know, it's kind of the beauty of the work is is getting your fingers, diving into those kind of the details, the texture of what each context is like and how we have to adapt and design our response to it.
0: I definitely have seen that through my work with the podcast, interviewing people from different places and seeing just how varied their experiences have been. And it makes you realize that our responses definitely also need to be varied and need to be adapted on that individual level. Like you noted, you've kind of covered a little bit of this, but what are some really unique things about what PRM is doing um, in terms of Colombia and Venezuela that make it very unique compared to these other situations?
1: Well, I mean, I think that we can't take credit for the most unique thing that's happening in the largest hosting country, which is this amazing step that Colombia has taken in offering temporary protection for 10 years to around 2 million people, which is, you know, I can't say enough about that, to be honest. I mean, I think that we have not seen anything in this region on the scale of what, what is about to happen. In terms of bringing people out of the shadows, in terms of enfranchising people, giving them their agency back. Um, and so the U S is like, we're really focused on how do we assist these amazing host countries in these giant efforts? How do we make this stick? How do we help them to operationalize a system that, you know, is going to require a lot of resources, A, um, and could also drive a lot of social tensions. So I I think for us, what we're focused on is, you know, we're working in a region where host country governments are very high capacity. These are governments that, you know, they know how to do this type of work. I mean, in the case of Colombia, you have a country that's dealt with an internally displaced population for decades. So they have a lot of really amazing experience already. Now, how do we turn that um, and broaden that experience out to be able to cover the needs of refugees and migrants, and I think that's what we can bring to it. We can help to to kind of extend the tentacles, the arms of of the the Colombian state via our partnerships, via the expertise that our partners bring, like a UNHCR, like uh, you know an IOM in terms of migration management. So I think <laughs> rather than saying especially what's special about U.S. work here, I think it's what's special about the situation here that we are able to support. And I think we're, we're starting to see some really big moves in the region that are very exciting uh, and, and precedent-setting.
0: For our listeners who might not be aware about this temporary protective status, and I know you mentioned it happened earlier when you were in Turkey, what exactly does that mean and what does this what does this mean for the
1: individual and then for for the crisis in general? So, the temporary protection decree was signed by the Colombian president, President Duque, on March 1st. And essentially, what it does, um, as I mentioned before, you have almost 2 million refugees and migrants here in Colombia. And about 54, 55% of them don't have any status. And I think that's very important when it comes to looking at how you're able to engage in any place that you live. You know, we're talking about not only do you not have status, they don't have any identification that they can use to to engage in the world, to engage in society. I think, you know, more so than in other places inside of Colombia, you really depend on having some kind of piece of identification that you can use to be able to get a cell phone to be able to open a bank account, to be able to enter some buildings. You have to be able to show an ID card to be noted down. And those things have gotten a little bit harder during the pandemic. But essentially what the TPS does is it's going to be giving everyone who is present in Colombia by the 31st of January of this year, 10 years of this temporary protection status where they're going to have an identification card that allows them to interact with the rest of Colombia in the same exact way that any other foreigner would. So, I mean, what does that translate to? I mean, it translates to being able to get health insurance, to work legally, to open a bank account, to um, have your children go to school legally. All those things are now going to be within reach for two million people. So, I mean, it's a it's a huge huge step forward and and I think it's it's one that's um, we're hopeful that other countries in the region will also take similar steps.
0: Is there any suggestion that other countries bordering Venezuela will um, create this temporary protective status for those refugees?
1: Well, I mean, I'm, I'm proud to say that we did it up in the U.S. <laughs> so so uh, we also passed TPS for the next 18 months, and that covers more than 300,000 Venezuelans who were in the U.S.
0: I'm going to hop in here with a quick note. What Angelina is referring to is a notice proclaimed by the Biden administration's Citizenship and Immigration Services Agency on March 9, 2021, that grants 18 months of temporary protective status to Venezuelans were physically present in the United States on March 9th. In the United States, TPS is designated by the Secretary of Homeland Security for countries deemed to be experiencing an ongoing armed conflict, an environmental disaster, or extraordinary and temporary conditions in the foreign state that prevent its nationals from returning to the state in safety. Currently, other countries with TPS in the United States include El Salvador, Haiti, Honduras, Nepal, Nicaragua, Somalia, South Sudan, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen. Much like in Colombia, TPS in the U.S. provides a work permit and stay of deportation to foreign nationals of these countries. However, while Colombia designated TPS for 10 years, in the United States, the maximum length of this designation is only 18 months, although the status can later be extended. Now, back to Angelina.
1: Um, I wouldn't be able to speak on behalf of other countries in the region, but I know, you know, there's there's a lot of different situations. I mean, I, I would say looking at countries that specifically border uh, Venezuela, you know, Brazil has been amazing in, in terms of providing protection and establishing um, a very interesting and very highly functional um, policy of interiorization, helping people to move from the border into interior parts of Brazil and, and get legal residency and work there. I think each country is very unique. So um, I think you'd have to go into kind of the, 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 the really weedy details to, to look at what would make sense. <laughs> but, um, but I think, you know, we're, we're, we're starting to see things happen here in this region. Um, that that kind of are on a scale that, that we haven't seen before uh, anywhere in the Western Hemisphere.
0: I think especially having that status is extremely important from what I've seen or talked with um, other displaced individuals. When you have no agency and you have no ability to, to go into certain buildings to get a job, to get insurance, being able to then have that is a complete game changer in a lot of ways, so
1: and and it reduces vulnerability in such crazy ways like so i mean you also need to think about so one thing that you know prm were super interested in is prevention of gender-based violence for example um and we look at the specific needs of women inside of uh inside of a humanitarian crisis and uh and when you look at like the risks of being trafficked the risks of labor exploitation domestic labor exploitation All of those things start to go down incrementally when that person has rights, you know, because (laughs) without a temporary protection card, without a status, an ID, if something happens to them, who do they go to? Who's going to listen? You know, like, do they have the ability to go to the police? Do they feel comfortable to go to police? You know, do they say, oh, well, I, you know, my, my employer, the person who's trying to explain me is a, you know, is a national of this country. Like, if I go forward, what will happen to me? Um, And that this kind of just wipes that off the table. It it gives people um, visibility. They're, they're no longer hidden in the shadows. And I think that's what's so remarkable about it. Um, I also think that you know um, they're taking they're taking a big gamble here that that this is going to to lead to some some much bigger long term benefits on on refugee integration and, and what that means and I, I think this is going to be a really fascinating case study to look at in the coming years. What does this mean? Um, you know, can we put down on paper some really good research about? if you pursue an integration policy what is it going to bring your country um you know in the colombians have done quite a bit of uh, really really solid research in terms of what this is going to bring is it going and 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 it's come out positive that they will be contributing a lot more than they necessarily will cost uh,
0: that's something i would definitely believe um we have a professor here at the university who did some research on what she calls the violence of uncertainty and I was looking at immigrants in the United States and how when you're uncertain about your status or what even rights you have, a lot of people are scared to, to go even to the hospital. Cause they say like, can I like, will I be safe there? Um, can I go to the police? And then it does increase vulnerability as you mentioned. So definitely having status, having certainty about what rights you have and who you can go to and who will listen is extremely important as you mentioned if you, I don't
1: know, I didn't want to cut you off. So go ahead. If you had something to say, go ahead. Oh, okay. No, I was just going to wax. I was going to wax poetic on another thing, like on access to health, Yes, Um, you know, another thing on, on access to health. Like I, I have personally spoken with so many different um, young Venezuelan women who never got any prenatal care. And, and they said, you know, I can't pay for it, or I, you know, I don't have insurance. Um, the system here is such that, uh, it's a universal insurance scheme. Um, and, and a lot of them, they end up with really complicated, really difficult situations when it's time for them to give birth because they go for emergency healthcare and they show up, you know, to an emergency room, having their doctor during the months of their pregnancy, um, I mean, for me as a mother, that that it it makes me just feel so much for them because you think about all the things that we take for granted in the course of a, a normal four to week pregnancy in terms of your scans and checking this and checking that, but on the other side, the cost of the emergency healthcare. When they go in with complicated conditions that have not been diagnosed, they haven't had the proper prenatal care. So, all of those things are coming at a premium um, and they're all being covered out of budgets that, you know, obviously this type of emergency health care is not something that people are able to pay for. So, uh, you know, the cost to the Colombian state ends up being much higher than if they were actually in the subsidized national health care scheme. And I think that's also been um, a really amazing step forward to make that calculus and to know that that's potentially quite unpopular as a policy, but understanding that the long term benefits of pursuing it are, are very high.
0: It's definitely important to, to look into that and see those numbers because I, I know sometimes it takes convincing for people where you said it might be unpopular uh, short term, but if you look at the long term benefits, you have to take those into account. Speaking of money, I guess, being such a large donor, what does that really mean? Like, is this, what does that money, is that money coming from US taxpayers? And then what specifically is it going to in Colombia?
1: Yeah, so we get our money allocated by Congress. Um, and most of the money comes through what we call the MRA account, which is a migration and refugee assistance account. Um, and you know, like I think, pretty much everything in the U.S. government, you know, we run on U.S. taxpayer money, um, which is another reason why I, <laughs> I like this job because it's a, as a custodian of U.S. resources. I'm I'm a little tough, um, but I, I think that it's it's a really important thing that we are always trying to keep that at the forefront that this is U.S. taxpayer money um, that we are we are just custodians of and we're looking to get the best benefit for um, vulnerable people around the world, because that is a U.S. foreign policy goal and it's part of American values. Um, So I think it's really important to always remember that piece. Um, In terms of the scale, the scope uh, for the Venezuela crisis, the U.S. has has contributed around $1.2 billion to date. So that's, and we started the clock on counting around 2017. Um, and what that means in Colombia specifically, it's over five hundred million dollars um, in humanitarian aid since two thousand and seventeen. Um, just in the last year, and well, we count by fiscal years, so in FY twenty twenty, um, we contributed over, or I think it was around two hundred million dollars in um, humanitarian assistance directly, and then. Our USAID office also has around $80 million that they programmed to support the government for migrant integration. So those are programs that also are targeted towards um, aiding Venezuelans. So that's the kind of the overall picture uh, of what's coming into the region.
0: For taxpayers who might not understand why their money is going abroad or might not support this, what what would you tell them?
1: well I mean that's an interesting conversation I think I think a lot of times I, I've always been surprised um, there's a bit that you can see if you go, you google it on YouTube where you ask um, people on the street how much they think is spent on foreign assistance um, and like they, they come up with pretty large numbers like 20% of the budget and I mean the reality is it's it's tiny in comparison to what's spent inside the US Um I think it's less than 1% at the, the end of the day. But I think that the thing that that really resonates with me as an American is that as the United States, you know, the values that we share as a people and as a country are, are important. And, and, you know, the fact that we do have the ability to be out there um, in the world, helping other countries, helping other people um, to, to also follow our shared values and to improve their lives. Um, you know, a lot of people ask me how, how I keep up my spirits doing this work and, you know, isn't it really hard to always be working with people who are, are in such a horrible situation, so miserable. Um, and for me actually going out to the field and being with refugees, it's the best part of my work and it's the part of my work that takes policy into reality and makes me realize that we have to do a better job. Um, And you had asked why, why does the US do this? Well, you know, for me, America is not just a territory land. It's also a set of ideas. Um, it's, It's a set of beliefs in the values that we all hold together, that we share. And I think that um, using our time, our expertise, and our resources to help people who don't have what we have is an extremely worthwhile endeavor.
0: Yes, I would 100% agree. Um, On that note, is there anything else you'd like to share? Um, Just about really anything in general to our listeners. This is a time to get anything off your mind.
1: Well, I would say that... um, in the spirit of, of participating in, in the humanitarian world, you know, I, I think a lot of times we look outside of the US, um, we look to, you know, the big international organizations and, you know, these big responses and the types of images that you see on television of refugee camps and, and that type of thing. But I, I also think that, you know, inside the US, there are so many people who have made it to our shores, um, who are resettled refugees, who are folks who have successfully been able to leave, um, to flee persecution, um, who end up in the U.S. uh, And I would say, take advantage uh, of the opportunity to try and work with them um, and to try and help those folks to integrate in our society, because I think that can only make us stronger as a country.
0: To our listeners, I would add personally, I was fortunate enough this past summer to intern with a refugee resettlement agency in Charlotte and help people and they're always looking for volunteers and it's, you don't even have to to interact, I guess, right, with those refugees. It's just donations and items or hiring people or just, there are so many ways to get involved in your local community that I would stress because we do tend to think this is an issue that's happening elsewhere, that's happening happening off of our borders. Um, and I, I possibly couldn't help unless I go there, but no, there are ways to help Right in your own local community and I want to just like emphasize that I guess but thank you so much for spending um this hour talking with me I guess it's less than an hour I really really appreciate it um and I can't wait to share this conversation with our listeners
1: well thank you for having me (laughs) it's really nice to chat with you today
0: thank you After doing this podcast for over a year now, I've had the privilege to interact with so many unique individuals. Speaking with Angelina reinforced the notion, at least for me, that we cannot take a one-size-fits-all approach in how we interact with these global issues. Every displaced person has their own story to tell, and every regional crisis is different. This conversation also reminded me that the global refugee crisis is so much more complex than we usually first think. It's not just refugee camps and UNHCR, It's also country governments and complex legal statuses. There's questions about access to health care and congressional budgets. The displacement crisis is not something happening on far off shores that we have absolutely no control over or impact on. Instead, for our American listeners, because our government is such an important global actor, it is a crisis we personally affect through something as simple as a singular vote in a federal election. At the risk of sounding too forward, I challenge all of our listeners to remember that, and to remember that all of our actions have consequences reaching well beyond ourselves and well beyond our country's border. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us in the comments below. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email us at seekingrefugepodcast at gmail.com. Follow us at Refuge Podcasts on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for all of the updates on our show. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in the
1: next one.